You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. Yeah, it's a mouthful. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. In a world where film studios have pillaged every young adult novel, DC'd every comic book series, and Frankenstein every silver screen monster in search of the next movie mega franchise. Two nerds. Two movies. One cinematic universe. This is Jasper. And this is Randy. We watched two movies. And we're going to be joined by a guest to talk about those two movies. Yes. Today we are joined by Mike Wood. I don't I got so all professional sounding. Today we're joined by Mike Wood of the Grindbin Podcast. Grindbin Podcast. Hey Mike, what's going on? Hey, what's up guys? I'm finally on your end. Dude, this of has the been podcast a world. long time coming. <laughs> yeah, years. I think it's been a while since you've been on a, a Grindbin, but I'm trying to get you on another one. Yeah, yeah. It has been literally years, which is kind of crazy. It and it has been a while. I can't even find the old episodes that I was on because RSS feeds kind of suck sometimes, but you've had me on three times. I've been on three grind bin episodes and finally getting you on uh, one of our shows. So I'm excited. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to be here and excited to talk about uh, two movies. I think are very interesting, which will be uh, interesting to see what you guys come up with in terms of creating a cinematic universe around them. <laughs> yes, it will be. This is, I'm, I'm not going to lie. This is going to be a little bit of a challenge. Now, is this the only movies that you've done where they constantly reference one of the movies in the other movie? I think it might be. I can't think of another one where it's such just like direct reference to the other movie we covered. But only in one half of it, which is interesting, uh-huh. I think. But Vanishing Point is, I mean, I guess they mentioned it once in the first half because Jasper pointed it out. But that's before... Uh, they, the girls even get to the bar. It's mentioned in a line of other movies. Okay. But, I mean, obviously the second half uh, focuses on, has, has a strong connection to the other movie we're talking about, which is, by the way, uh, Vanishing Point. We paired that with Death Proof, which is our Quentin Tarantino movie. Now, listener, if you're paying any attention, and I wouldn't blame you if you're not, uh Generally, we've been trying to do the. <laughs> this, you always act surprised when I say stuff like that, Jasper. This is how I do. Uh, we've been covering Quentin Tarantino movies this quote unquote season Tarantino. of the podcast. Yes, season Tarantino. And uh, we've been trying to do them in order, but I might have goofed a little bit. I might have goofed a little bit. And uh, we're going to push Kill Bill back a little bit and we're going to do Death Proof this episode. And a big part of that is because. I finally lined this up with with Mike to have him on the show, and Death Proof feels very much in line with the kind of movie that Mike would find himself talking about on his show. Uh, why is that? What what kind of movies do you discuss on Grindbin? Well, every time I describe Grindbin movies to people, they always say, you know, they reference the Grindhouse movie. Not so much now because it's it's what are we going on twelve years since the movies come out at this point. No, we don't have or to talk It's about been that. Uh, not that long, has it? <laughs> yeah. no, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I, oh, it yeah, probably no, has been that so. long, at least. Uh, yeah. yeah, so it's been a long time. But 
they always reference the Grindhouse movie, and I say, well, one of those movies is like the movies we watch, and the yeah. other one is kind of an emulation of what you would expect Grindhouse movies to be like, which is Planet Terror, which is the first movie in Grindhouse. I always say is like what people would imagine a Grindhouse movie would be, but it's way too involved and action-heavy to be anything low-budget that we typically cover on our show. Death Proof is more like the movies we watch on our show, I'd say. It's a good, uh, I would say that Quentin Tarantino did a very, very good job of making like a Crown International, American International Pictures type of movie that you would find on our show. Where it's a little bit meandering and a part of that is just, it's cheaper to film somebody in one location talking. Yes. And the other thing about it is that a lot of, as we can get into, you know, with Vanishing Point, which is not exactly a grindhouse movie per se, but it's it's a weird, it's a, it's almost like an, uh, I don't know how to explain it other than like a car chase movie, but it's an art movie. So it's like an art house car chase movie, which is yeah, very weird. That seems appropriate. But a lot of these low budget, like what they would call grindhouse movies, a lot of them we cover from Crown International, which I believe you've covered the van with us, Randall. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't you say that the van has a very similar plot structure to Death Proof? Yeah, yeah. And that it meanders, like you said, and then kind of it kind of wraps itself up at some point. Um, um, yeah, fairly, fairly quickly, which is also kind of a trope. When it's over, it's over. Now, the interesting thing is like sometimes you get these very, very interesting movies that were made by directors who just weren't given a chance by studios, but were given money to make these ideas. So usually genre films, you know, as long as you make it like a beach movie, you can do whatever you want. But the problem is, is that the guys have no interest in making a beach party movie. So they end up adding some insane, like murderous twist to the whole thing. And it becomes this really bizarre movie that's Uh, it's trying to be something different, but it's contained within a genre, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And Death Proof reminds me a lot of that. It's like somebody wanting, if Quentin Tarantino was in the 70s, like being given the idea, like, well, you need to make a car chase movie. And then he adds this bizarre sub, you know, plot about a guy who's trying to, you know, murder, I guess, immoral women in his mind. Yeah. It's very weird. It's, it reminds me a lot of The Teacher. If you've ever seen that, that's a very, very old episode of ours. Mm-hmm. But it reminds me a lot of that, where it's like a, a boy and a teacher fall in love, but it ends up there's this bizarre uh, murderous subplot that gets involved and then eventually consumes the whole movie. <laughs> and so that's it's it's interesting. Like whenever you're watching these movies, they could be long, they could be boring, but they always have something very interesting and shocking for you. These studios then did they just not care what the other stuff was so long as it had that that nudity in the first thirty seconds of the film? Do you think yeah. they don't care what follows? Well, most of the time it's like kind of um, the reason that grindhouse movies existed for the most part was for to fill up with as much content as possible, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have a drive-in, you need two movies every week because you need to have the double feature. So as long as the genres there that the, you know you can say car chase or horror movie or slasher movie, action movie, whatever it might be, as long as you just get the genre of what people are expecting, they don't really care because again these movies are made in like a month mm-hmm. most of the time, and that, and that means for filming, editing, everything, and it and then it's you know being screened in South Dakota or wherever it is, and so a lot of these movies would never see outside of just you know 
some sort of drive-in theater or like 42nd Street on New York, but you just fill it up with as much content as you can. So there's a lot of bad, there's some good, but most of the time, yes, they don't care. It, it, for a good explanation of it is like if you go watch uh, Ed Wood, mm-hmm. the character who plays the distributor in that movie is a very good description of what they were looking for at that time. Because, you know, Ed Wood famously made that Glenn or Glenda movie. And the distributor was like, I just need a sex change picture. And he comes back with this whole movie, you know, about a guy wearing women's clothing and everything. And he's just all upset about it because he didn't give him what he wanted. Yeah. Yes. As long as you delivered that nudity, that action, whatever it might be, they don't care what you filled it in with. Yeah. That's always my go to when I think about it is, you know, because he's got the poster. He's got the title. Now he just needs somebody to make the movie. He doesn't care what it is so long as it fits that poster and that title. Oh, yeah. And I changed my sex. Yeah. A hundred percent of the time, (laughs) all of the the movies had the poster made before the movie. A good segue into Vanishing Point, which I assume is the first movie we'll talk about, is I'm watching Vanishing Point and I'm thinking like, this is actually not quite because I'd never seen Vanishing Point before. I'd heard of it. It's definitely referenced in Death Proof. And so I was expecting... I was expecting more of a a grindhouse style, more of a lower budget thing. And it's very well produced and it looks pretty good. And I'm like, this is like, I don't know. They seems like they actually had a budget. This doesn't seem quite as lower tier. I was like, it seems like there's definitely actually a, a bigger studio behind this. I was a little surprised by that. So then afterwards I was looking at, looking up a little bit of information on it. And I think it still would fit because... Apparently it came out, or the studio was not, was not happy with it. They released yeah. it, it hit some theaters, like they, it was kind of a limited release, hit some theaters, two weeks later they pulled it, but it ended up finding like, and then it became fairly popular in Europe, I guess, and it went to drive-ins and became very popular in drive-ins and became a popular second feature to run. So it kind of found its second life in drive-ins. So I'm like, well, that's still totally, that's still totally in the wheelhouse then. Yeah, because it's a good-looking movie. The mm-hmm. cinematography, I mean, all the car chases, it's a very, very good-looking movie. It looks more expensive than it is. Yeah, I don't think the budget was at all that high. It, d- it did make its money back and then some, though, according to Wikipedia, anyway. Okay, so, since we're just going to jump right into it, Jasper, what, what, what are we talking about? Tell us a little bit more about this movie. So, it's 1971 was when The Vanishing Point came out. Uh, during the 1970s, car delivery driver Kowalski delivers hot rods in record time, but always runs into trouble with the highway cops. Okay. Uh, it is directed by Richard C. Safarian or Safarian. I don't know. Dude, don't ask me for names, man. I'm the worst. <laughs> S-Man. I don't know. The S-Man. Written by Guillermo Cabrera Infante and it looks like Malcolm Hart. Uh, it stars Barry Newman as Kowalski, Cleavon Little as Super Soul. Uh, Charlotte Rampling and Dean Jagger. Okay, Mike, you recommended this to pair with Death Proof. I think the connection is fairly obvious, but uh, was there any other reason this was kind of your first pick? You threw out a couple different options. Well, I kept thinking about the movie to pair with it, and I eventually went with Vanishing Point just because of the strong connection with Death Proof, and I was like, I would really like to explore why... 
Quentin Tarantino mentioned this movie so much in mm-hmm. Death Proof and what, if any, connections it has when watching the movie. And I think, like, going through it, you know, and I might just be using my film analyst mind uh, and there's nothing to it, that there's a lot of connections between this movie and Death Proof. Interesting. Okay. Jasper, yes. ha- had you ever heard of or seen this movie? I know I've seen parts of this movie. Uh, I know that it was on TV, though. And I just remember the him driving across the desert. Okay. Like where he's actually driving across like the sand. I mean, beyond hearing it referenced in other in other stuff, my dad was a big seventies movie. I mean, that's just his generation, but he was a big movie guy. So I'd heard of and seen a lot of seventies, specifically seventies movies through him. And I know he's probably he had probably mentioned this, but I don't think I've ever actually watched this movie. And Mike, you'd seen had you seen this before, I'm assuming? Yes. Okay. Jasper then. Yeah. What'd you think? What's your initial impressions of this movie? It actually, at first was a little slow for me, but actually I think this movie progressed into something that I really was entertained by. The big thing being the guy at the radio station is kind of like narrating, Uh but it's not really like they're not even supposed to know. It's a very weird thing with him. Yeah. And that was that was interesting, and but like he's just driving across the state, and every every stop or something has a story or goes back to his his origin story. It was an entertaining movie. Okay, Mike, would you you enjoy this movie? Is this a is something you like? Yeah, I think it's a much better movie trapped inside of a genre movie, because the the themes that you know, Seraph Seraph, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Safarian Seraphian. <laughs> is dealing with are a little bit heavier than you would expect from a typical car chase movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's no Smokey and the Bandit, that's for sure. There's certainly more going on, I think, character-wise in Vanishing Point. So I initially was super on board. I really love the opening. Construction vehicles rolling up. It's just noise and the atmosphere, the tone of it. I really like the opening. And then it once it got into it, I was I was really on board with I was like, oh, this is interesting. It seems like I almost bet it's gonna be just car chase the whole movie, and we get told his backstory or the situ- the scenario, what's like the actual plot through flashbacks and stuff like that. And that is what happens. By the end of the movie, though, I'm like, I I don't I don't know this guy. I don't understand. <laughs> I was really like, it kind of lost me at some point, and. Uh, I guess that surprises me because I went into this expecting to be totally on board and partway through, I'm like, I don't, I don't get, I don't understand (laughs) because, because I don't need something spelled out for me. If I look at other movies, I enjoy like, yeah, I, I can digest more on conventional plot structures and storytelling, uh, and narrate narrative styles than, you know, some, some other people, but this, I was like, the little flashbacks weren't giving me enough and, but there's, I don't know. I, I, after I watched this, I had to look it up and there is straight up stuff. I just was not picking up. I didn't understand the stuff with, uh, the girl who pops up a couple times. I, I don't know. I was not, I did not really enjoy this as much as I kind of expected to. So that's what, that's what I'm trying to say. I believe the story with the girl is supposed to be that uh, the girl we keep flashing back to was his girlfriend at some point and that she had drowned in some sort of surfing mishap is what we're led to believe from a newspaper article. 
and that after that, I believe it said that he was somehow blamed for it. Okay. Okay. And ever since then, Kowalski has basically been, and this is where it's an interesting theory, I think, is that ever since then, Kowalski's basically been trying to find ways not to kill himself, but get killed. Because the chosen professions he has after being a cop is he's going to be a race car driver and then a motorcycle racer. But he's we're always focusing on these like near crashes that almost kill him. He's almost killed, but it ends up being somebody else that gets hurt. And like that happens again when that roadster chases him at that one point. Mm hmm. And then that guy ends up flipping over the bridge. And I mean, we all saw them, saw that guy die by landing straight on his head, but somehow he survives. Yeah. So for all purposes throughout the whole movie, Kowalski is death proof until the very end. That actually makes a lot more sense. Okay. I can get behind that story. <laughs> there's so many. <laughs> it was just there so. There are so many moments where he shouldn't have survived, right? Like the, mm -hmm. even the snake in the desert, when somehow magically a man comes and saves him from that. Yeah, yeah. Out of nowhere. every <laughs> every time that he's like in some sort of problem with the cops, he somehow finds a way out of it, even though he shouldn't be getting out of it. And like the whole movie, he's just driving with this death wish, but for some reason, it just won't happen. And so I don't know if like the reason that you keep flashing back to the whole his backstory is that you understand it as well. This man has been trying to find a way not to kill himself, but to get killed. I think that has something to do with it. I mean, you, you say it's a theory, but I kind of feel like that's probably is the story that that lines up that jives with what I watched. I just did not pick that up at all. And I don't know, I guess with that in mind, I might enjoy another viewing more. It's just and I was looking, I was looking because it would do the little like I said, I was actually intrigued by that kind of plot, that that framing of basically road, 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 occasional flashback to something, road, road, road. And eventually the flashbacks, I mean, they still kind of happen. Um, the girl doesn't even uh, come into it till later in the movie at all. But occasionally some of the exposition stuff gets taken over by police or the radio guy. Um, yeah. So I was, I was looking for anything I could pick out of there. I did not pick that up, but I do find that kind of interesting. A very relevant part is... Towards the end, when he's driving away from the cops and they're tracking him, right? Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, he meets that random hippie lady. Not the lady riding naked on the motorcycle, but the other hippie lady that's the hitchhiker. Who kind of looks familiar to his girlfriend. Okay. I believe that's supposed to be kind of like an angel of death type of thing. And that she just... The words that she says to him are very weird right like she she's not she's scary almost because she says things like i've been waiting for you a long time kowalski and she says very interesting things and like he never really responds to that and the only thing he does is kind of like embrace it and the idea was as i'm seeing it is like i don't know if it's supposed to be but it, it could potentially be like that she's the embodiment of like the de of death like she's basically the grim reaper and that she's finally come to basically collect him because the next thing that happens is there's no way out. But it's strange because in the beginning of the movie, we saw him get out of that same situation. Mm -hmm. Do you recall the scene he's talking about, Jasper? I actually don't. I, I oh, don't either. I, 
I, I wonder, wonder if it's if, not in your cut. I'm kind of, I don't recall the, yeah, the female hitch, a female hitchhiker before. Although it's in the IMDb, it says that it was a female hitchhiker is one of the top stars. Oh wow, I that would be crazy. Oh yeah, it says right here, Charlotte Rampling. Her her scenes were deleted. Okay, so I have a cut of this movie where she is there. And at the end of this movie, before he gets caught and goes to the like before he ends up how he does at the end of the movie. Right. Mm -hmm. He at night is driving down the highway and he's he picks up a hitchhiker who's played by Charlotte Rampling uh, and she's smoking pot and she gives him pot and they pull to the side of the road. And there's this whole scene where she says these very cryptic things to him, like I've been waiting for you a long time. And then he makes a move on her and the next thing you know it's like it's assumed that they had sex but the next day he wakes up and she's gone wow okay that's a very interesting thing to cut out of the movie uh, yeah i'm <laughs> like, looking up i'm looking up run times here because i've got to compare um yeah because the only hitchhikers i remember is the two guys there, there's the two oh. gay guys that tried to rob him by the way grindman all-star uh the killer from the teacher Oh, really? <laughs> one of those guys, yeah. Okay, so uh, Google lists the runtime at an hour and 47 minutes. But how long is the video file that we actually watched? Hour 34 minutes. Hour oh, 34? Wow. Yeah, cut out that whole part. Did you get at least, did it have the lady that was riding the motorcycle naked? Did they yes. cut that part out? Okay, no. no we, we got her, and I was, I was a little confused, but intrigued by her collage of of stuff i was okay well obviously he's known to her i mean that's it's very coincidental i really wish i mm, i'm gonna have to find i'm gonna have to find the scene that we missed and check it out yeah, it's so fascinating they'd cut that out because that, that's what i'm saying it's like it kind of explains a lot of what's going on i think in terms that, of these people he's meeting that might have made yeah that might have put i i I didn't have a problem with the ending, so we're gonna go ahead. We're just gonna jump all over because obviously <laughs> J Jasper and I watched a bad copy of this that was missing stuff. Because it's almost impossible to find the correct version of this movie, I guess, because it's really only been released in the UK and in Europe. I, I don't know. I think you can find a copy now on Blu-ray, but for years the only way you could find it was an international version, which I don't know why. And we found this. Uh, I'm just gonna go ahead and say I found this on archive.org, which it is not supposed to be. It is not uh, public domain <laughs> or anything like that. But it was there, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, not going to question it, but I guess I should have questioned it. Um, it's so weird because I didn't, it didn't even, I didn't even notice any spots like that just must be an alternate version because I didn't notice any spots where it felt like there was any awkward edits. I mean, this isn't Avengers Endgame, but I didn't even notice any spots where stuff would have been missing. It's like I didn't, you know, notice any odd edits that felt out of place. So the art house aspect to the story itself just hadn't really occurred to me. And I really kind of wish I could revisit it, revisit it with that in mind. I'm going to have to sometime that just, <laughs> yeah, it, it's kinda... it just puts my possible, my potential review of it or just, you know, my star rating in question because I didn't watch the proper movie. Yeah. But anyway, no, it's, when you kind of, you kind of look at it and you see like, cause super soul is almost like, you know, like a Greek chorus almost is that he's kind of leading Kowalski throughout the whole movie, mm -hmm. even though, and it's very weird that somehow they're able to talk to each other. 
I did appreciate that to where they are. So it it establishes pretty early that Super Soul. So listener, if you have no idea of anything we're talking about, he's basically he's a radio DJ. He's a blind guy, and uh, he gives he gives Kowalski. When you say it out loud, it sounds even crazier. He gives Kowalski like kind of advice or directions through the radio, but not like a two way radio. He's he's a radio DJ, but it does establish fairly early that. It seems like Super Soul can see things, see what he's doing, what Kowalski's doing somehow. Um, kind of a s- interesting, strange, supernatural aspect, I guess, if you look at it that way. But yeah, there's that part where they have a full conversation with each other while he's driving through the desert. Yeah, they are. Which talking I thought was really weird. Forth. Yeah. yeah, I kind of dug that. Which I also have like kind of some theories that like maybe there are multiple vanishing points because I guess the vanishing point like because what we deal with in the very beginning of the movie, you see the scene where it basically you're at the end of the movie Mm -hmm. and it ends differently. Right. Yep. But then he drives away and the car just disappears at one point. It like freeze frames. uh, There's two cars, um, his car and another car. And then his car like just fades away. Yeah. Yeah, but then there's a theory you could say like, well, did Kowalski ever really even make it out of that desert? You know, I was thinking that too after the after uh, after he crashed it at the end. I'm like, well, who knows? Like, I don't know what parts of that movie to take as an actual thing happening. Yeah, which kind of then you kind of look at it and you're like, all right, well, he was going like obviously director's going for something more deep than just you know a Smokey and the Bandit fun car chase movie. Mm-hmm. There's all these bizarre themes he's dealing with, especially I really wish you guys would have seen the, the whole hippie lady, the angel of death lady. But yeah, he's, he's dealing with such just like much heavier stuff. When, when I start to break it down in my mind, I see like various points where it could technically be, I guess, what you would call the vanishing point is did Kowalski ever survive that? Like the snake driving in the desert, the flat tire. Like, again, how do you drive that car through the desert without having any sort of problems with your challenger i mean he's driving for miles <laughs> over brush and rocks and all this stuff and he just gets one flat tire he ends up getting out of it too like yeah he does he literally just drives right through the desert and he just so happens to have a full-size spare in the trunk it's very weird like the whole thing and then also he's delivering this car yet he's trashing the thing that was a, okay so that was the key thing that i was like so what's what's I can get behind a movie length car chase thing, but what's like, what's the reason for it? And that's where I was really struggling because they, they say he's delivering a car, but I'm like, that doesn't even really, that doesn't make sense. That's not how you deliver a car. Whoever you're delivering that car for is not going to be happy. They don't, I think they would rather you be late with the delivery than you trash it in a cross country police chase drive it through miles of de- desert uh yeah. take it off ramps like it, ridiculous it just is like a means to the ends basically he's like well he's just using it as a way to try to find a way to kill himself but not directly kill himself to get killed because i mean at the end of the movie he just kind of embraces it how i felt about the end i was fine with that because i was like well that's a 70s <laughs> ending right there <laughs> it's straight up there are a lot, a lot of mo- in the seventies. It was okay for your char- your main character to just decide. You know what? I'm just gonna end it. Yeah. So according to the trivia, 
before they made the U.S. version, that scene was taken out. And so they slipped it back in when the U.K. version was released. Huh. Wow. So, and it does say the hitchhiker in the uncut version of Charlotte Rampling was death as she tells Kowalski that he slipped her grasp a few times over the years and that he is expected soon to meet her for the final time. On the DVD, there are two versions of the film. I think I think <laughs> I would have got it if that scene was there. That seems pretty yeah. blatant. God. It seems insane. They would. What are they just like, eh, the Americans, they won't get it. Cut it out. Was that too weird of all the stuff leading up to it? Is that the, that's the thing that pushes it over the edge? So does she give him pot? And does he take the pot? Because I yes. found it interesting earlier that he, I mean, he's a... Sp- a speed freak, but uh, you know that he declined pot or anything like that. But he just wanted his uppers to keep keep himself awake. Mm, yeah, this is the only time he takes a downer. Yeah, is when he takes the pot from her. Interesting. I bet there's. Yeah, that makes sense. And then he decides to drive into the construction. No, weirdest, equipment. the weirdest ending to a movie. Really? Yeah. I think I agree with Randall. Very seventies. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't find the ending itself weird. I just found the like the whole idea of it weird. The crazy eyes though is what got me at the he's just like wanting to hit the bulldozer. Oh, he gets that smile. Oh yeah. Well, that's what I knew for sure he was running into the bulldozer. As soon as he started smiling, I'm like, oh yeah, okay. I know where this is going. I mean, okay, so in terms of outside of the very confusing plot, not confusing, the very outside of the plot, we'll say. <laughs> Uh, the the theory the ideas behind it i think this is a pretty good looking movie okay so we watched obviously we watched the uh, whatever edited version of the movie through a the us version somewhat <laughs> uh, you know illegitimate means but even the copy we watched it looked good i was like this has got a good picture it looks nice the production was decent i did love seeing fast cars actually driving fast it's just something that when you think about it, you don't, even in modern action movies, you just don't really see it. Like those are actual cars just hauling. It's not, it's not the cheesy kind of like sped up footage where it's slightly sped up. So they're, you know, they look like they're driving a little faster than they actually were driving. And it's not, obviously it's not like any kind of effects. It's just a lot of times those cars are hauling. Oh, and, and the cinematography is so great with it. Mm-hmm. Because even when they'll just put it, and it'll be very shaky, you just get that sense of speed and like the sense of danger. Because the movie itself, the car chases are so intense. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the, the sense of speed is there that you rarely get in movies. Because a lot of times, you know, you'll watch these like movies today and there's like a lot of stuff going on, but it's almost like too dense sometimes to get a scale of what's exactly happening and just the idea of like putting a wide lens on uh on your camera and filming this car going down a long country road or through the desert and you just get that sense of speed with it just going behind it the low angle you know it's just everything about it is like a lovingly created car chase which i think uh is definitely emulated in death proof when we get into that yeah yeah well and a lot of I think in movies we've covered in the past on the show, in a, in more modern, I mean, at this point, not even modern movies, but in more modern movies to really like kind of impress me in that same way, it usually takes some a stunt or something that looks dangerous. And that's what I'll say. Like, I think even, God, it was a god-awful movie, but the, the transporter, uh, I want to say there was a couple stunts in there that I was like, that actually looked kind of dangerous. Like, 
somebody almost got hurt. That's what it takes. And in the, in, if in modern movies, like it looks, it has to look like the stunt almost went wrong for it to really sell it for me. But when you're filming a car, just driving that fast, it looks dangerous because you're actually driving that fast. So the driving is, is pretty impressive. The stunts, there's a, you know, there's a couple jumps and stuff, but I mean, just weaving in and out of traffic and flying through ditches and stuff is, yeah, it was, it was good. I was pretty impressed with all the driving in that respect. And stylistically, there was some, like, when he drives out into the desert, they cut to the shot a couple times where it's like a front-on shot of his face and the camera. It's obviously it's strapped onto, the, like, the hood of the car or something, but it's super shaky where they really embraced it. And it even kind of, uh, uh, there's, like, the screen almost whites out a few times, which is just a flicker light. Yeah. I really, I, I enjoyed that. I appreciated that. There's definitely some interesting stylistic decisions going on there. My thing with the the chases was like it was actually for like a seventies movie, you know. Oh man! Well, I mean, no, like seventies movie had some of the best chases. Yeah, I mean, you know, I actually never seen Smoking the Bandit, by the way. But um, I don't like the look I'm getting. But anyway, no, that's okay. <laughs> but I'm not uh, wild about those. I'm not wild about those. But that's just me. But that's yeah, I mean, oh. like you were saying though, like with the with the way the cinematography and stuff was, like you felt like you were in the car with him, mm-hmm. you know. But uh. I was kind of laughing while reading the, the trivia that they had seven of that same car on loan from Chrysler, and they only got one back. <laughs> uh, I believe it, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That scene when he was chasing that guy in the Roadster, when they're having their little duel. Oh, my God, man. They're going like over 100, like smashing into each other. And you could tell, yeah, there must have been multiple takes where one of those cars was just undrivable mm-hmm. by the end of one of them. That's a hell of a jump that guy takes towards the end of that chase. I'm glad you mentioned it. You you said it like you did earlier. Like we seen we seen what would have been that guy dying. There's no way. Like that's a convertible. It landed. <laughs> I seen the helmet on the guy as it yeah. like goes connects to the ground. I'm like, well, he's dead. And then he gets out. Yeah, yeah. You clearly see the helmet hit the ground just flush on the ground. Yep. And then it cuts to the car turned over and he's like, Yeah, I'm fine. I do appreciate that the the uh, that Kowalski, our main character, every time someone else crashes, although if he was really that concerned, he maybe would not constantly swerve in and out of traffic because somebody's probably going to die anyway. But anytime somebody crashes, he stops and and like either gets out or waits to see if they're okay. He did it when uh, some of the cops, the first cop that fell off his bike, he like stopped and waited till he knew the cop was okay before he took off again. And same with the convertible guy. He actually stopped and ran out to see if the guy was all right down there. Yeah. It's interesting. Like what, what his ultimate motive is for doing that. I think that was essentially my hangup. I was like, why is, why is he doing this? Some things, like I said, after the fact, I looked at some stuff, which, cause I was just so kind of confused and even in looking stuff up, I found some conflicting stuff, but I think some people are like, he's just a speed freak trying to get his thrills. And that's what his motivation is. I'm like, that still doesn't really, I guess maybe, but that still doesn't really seem in line. Like he seems driven, no pun intended. He seems driven. Like it, this seems important to him and I couldn't understand why. Yeah. I guess it well, makes what a, sense if it's kind of a, almost a Jacob's ladder journey thing he's got going on. Yeah. Would have helped if they didn't cut out your scene. So Right. Right. <laughs> See, I'm not stupid. They just, I, I was withheld information. <laughs> yeah. Apparently, American audiences are too dumb to watch that scene. 
So they cut it out. <laughs> that makes so much like it makes so much sense to have it in there. Why? I mean, yeah, I'm real curious if I would have like really kind of picked up on that angle more if it was in there. I mean, if you're gonna cut anything out, you could cut out the part with the naked lady on the motorcycle because I mean, nobody would do that in real life. That's I was, leather. I was. <laughs> it's leather. I was thinking about that. I'm, and they, out in the desert, what lady? What are you doing? Riding around on a motorcycle naked in the desert seems like a oh, terrible idea. Uh, it's the worst idea ever. Also, okay, so the whole context of you know where it's it's much more art house than I was expecting kind of changes things, but. A few things I was thinking going through this, I was like, for one, it seems like, you know, I didn't imagine there were so many just random weirdos in the desert. Like you just come across some. Have you spent much time in the desert or? Nope. I okay. haven't. So maybe, uh, maybe there are, <laughs> maybe there are. You know, yeah, I don't think there. Was... <laughs> <laughs> it's a good point. The, the whole, the whole business with that, uh, what did they call it? The healing Basically, the like religious group, the the, the oh the, the faith healers, the faith healers, yeah, that's what they called them. Uh, out in the de- that was very strange, especially the, their especially their leader, the deacon guy was was indeed evil. Well, he he was intimidating and odd and off putting for sure. My question is, does he ever get his coffee and beans? Yeah, seriously, yeah, because the guy was just like, yeah, you'll get him. <laughs> yeah, I was like, He's you. Like, yeah, is that now or I gotta wait? But apparently they upgraded from snakes to music. Yeah, it's okay. They don't need the snakes anymore. They got music. What were they doing with the snakes? Yeah, that was definitely, I thought, a big comment that they were making. Mm-hmm. Is that the power of persuasion was in the the uh, music of the time, I guess. And that you can create a message. I guess maybe commenting on, because again, this is what, 1971? So we're talking, mm-hmm. you know, Vietnam War era like reflecting back on protests and stuff. I think maybe the idea that like music had been used as kind of a message for a counterculture at that point. Man. Jasper, (laughs) we're blowing this movie. Uh, No, imagine what our review would have been if Mike wasn't here. Like we, I think we would have had it it wrong. It would have been a straight cut. Just, (laughs) I, I don't, I, Oh man, I'm glad. So, Everybody, welcome, welcome, Mike, our new co-host. <laughs> He's here to make sure. No, he'll just be our fact check he'll guy. Be, we'll yeah, check in with him before of, every head of information. Like, so here's our take. Do we watch the right cut? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. Well, I don't know. That definitely puts a much more interesting angle on on the movie. That said, it it drug on a little bit, maybe for me. Oh yeah, seventies. Yeah, it drug on a bit because. You can do a movie length car chase and it's not even that because it, you know, the second half or so, it feels like it does kind of, I mean, he, for the most part, keeps driving almost the whole time, but it seems like it does like the cutaways from him to, you know, the radio station or police officers. Oh, that reminds me of one of my favorite lines out of it that I'll have to look up here. And, uh, it does do the cutaways more frequently, I think in the second half. So it doesn't necessarily feel like it's just driving nonstop, but you can do that for a whole movie and have it not get boring, but this movie kind of drug on a little bit. It was a little dull uh, in parts. It's a movie you could like do laundry while watching, you know? Yeah. 
you're, you're not gonna like as long as you catch the car chases and some fun stuff like you can, if, as long as you can hear it you know what's going on but yeah it um in typical 70s fashion and 60s i guess takes its time it's in no rush so one of my favorite lines is kind of a nothing line but it amused me was uh it must have been Colorado was calling over to California cops or whatever, or no, Nevada. Oh yeah. He started in Colorado and then went through Nevada. Yeah. But the lady says, this is California. We don't call them mothers or speed freaks around here. I was like, that's fun. And I just have to say, uh, you know, knowing people from San Francisco, nobody calls it Frisco. That was a big point of contention in my house. My wife used to live in San Francisco. And she would get very, very upset if somebody called they call it Frisco. It, did they call it? Because I have a, here in Nebraska, I've actually heard that, that people get upset about that. So oh, yeah. did they, I didn't notice in the movie. Did they did They call it Frisco? Yeah. He keeps saying, yeah, I'm going to Frisco. I'm like, oh, oh boy. Because <laughs> he goes, uh, that's Tourist. home. That's what he says, you know, in the lost scene that you guys didn't see. He says, uh, I'm going to Frisco. And she goes, why? And he goes, because it's home. And I was like, eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> yeah. I'm calling you out, man. <laughs> nice. Interesting. Interesting. It's so funny how you missed such a key scene. <laughs> it does. It really so seriously feels like a key. Thanks for reminding us about it. It seriously feels so... like a very, like, of all this... Thinking back it to the scenes. Like, it feels like it just tied the whole movie together. The attempted robbery could have went. The motorcycle, the naked chick on the motorcycle could have went. Um, the motorcycle boyfriend had like a direct plot. Uh, yeah, I guess you so could. Yeah, keep that guy. He needed to be there. But um, did you need the snake guy? Maybe not. Yeah, you didn't really need the snake guy. You didn't even need most of that desert stuff. Like all of that could have gone. But keep that chick in there to kind of like at least set up. I don't know, a yeah. tone or something, some type of thematic reason for him to decide, yeah, I'm just going to drive straight into this now. Yeah. They cut out the lady from Orca. Like, what were they thinking? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, okay, well, what else is there about this? What is it? The actor. Um, I oh, feel Barry like Newman. I, should, I feel like I should know him, but I can't place him that I've seen him in other stuff, but I thought he was pretty decent. Yeah, I mean, it's he, one of his earlier roles, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, looking through his IMDb, it was one of his earlier roles. And then he's just kind of like shows up in all sorts of movies, but I, I guess never really like a a huge star or anything. I was reading that he, uh, that role was supposed to be Gene Hackman. What? Really? Oh. I mean, I guess 70s Gene Hackman, that makes a little more, more sense. I yeah. just have, I just have, I think, I think I have forever just like 90s Gene Hackman in my head after he's doing all the. He he just got certain Gene Hackman roles. So anyway, um, I mean, I guess this guy. It's it's kind of interesting because he's not given very much dialogue at all. Like he has very little to say. But of course, he's for the most part driving by himself most of the movie. But emotionally, it kind of seems like he doesn't have much to work with. He kind of is just very level for the most part. There's a couple moments where you're. He smiles at the end. There's a couple moments where he seems like tense or upset, but even still, I don't know. He seemed good. He had good screen presence. Oh yeah, I thought he was good. I thought everybody in the movie was was very very good. Mm-hmm. I guess also Chris Christopherson was auditioned for the role. 
Oh, really? Yeah, that, that would have been a different movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know how to handle star ratings because I kind of feel like I didn't really see the movie proper. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, well, uh, Mike, for you, where would this fall for you out of like five stars? Now, is it a straight star, or can I do halves, or what? You can do halves. You can Ma- do maybe, thirds if you want. No, maybe not point like five nine seven or anything ridiculous. There's got to be rules. There's got to be rules, guys. Thank you. I knew Mike would understand. <laughs> not point nine, five point nine, or three point nine, or whatever. Sometimes I get annoyed by that because I'm like, okay, well, what are we grading on? Because if you have a five scale, like, and then you have halves, then it's technically like a ten. Right? It is. Yeah. I guess it, it is. Yeah. Y- yeah. It is a ten scale. So, I like to look at five stars. Five stars is kind of, you know, people understand five stars. Agreed. Yeah, but then, I agree. That's, so, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know if you ever listened to it, but I think, was that our first episode, Jasper? I think it was the first episode where you really, like, you tried to give something like a 2.9 or something. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and that was my thing. I was like, is is 10, is a 10 scale, like, not enough you need to break it down to like hundredths and thousandths to like really nail in where you feel this movie belongs all i said was the edge the the little tip of the star was not lit up that's all i said <laughs> well Almost i appreciate i appreciate your visual thinking i do but uh, <laughs> so so yeah you know it, half stars are fine okay with that being said 3.56 stars <laughs> You had to do it. <laughs> oh. You know what? I'm okay with that. I, oh, what the <laughs> I knew it. I knew that would upset Jasper. 3. If, 5. I, if I go to the okay. website after this episode airs <laughs> and I see 3.56, I'm coming after you. He's gonna, Mike's going to get his own special star You can scale. round it up. 3.6. Oh, God, we're still there. So, <laughs> Oh, man, I'll be so mad. 3.5. Uh, okay. I'll go 3. with that. 5. Do you feel like you, do you want to give do you want to give the U.S. weird cut a, a, a rating? Yeah, we'll give the sh- cut. Um, I'm, I'm going three point five two. Okay, not three point five two, like three point five comma two. Words. It has great ideas, not not fully realized, in my opinion. I don't know if you guys agree. Well, I I like your ideas. I I do agree <laughs> that I don't feel like they're fully realized, at least not for what I saw. But it it makes sense. I really did not pick up on that aspect i just couldn't i couldn't like i knew with the the radio dj guys like well obviously there's kind of like they're not working on straight like this isn't straight reality here if if death had visited you and offered you a joint you could have opened your mind Right. And seen Vanishing Point for what they intended, Randall. I, need, I needed that. Like death. everybody in the drive-in th- drive was doing. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You know what? <laughs> I, I was missing two things. That scene and a death join, apparently. Then yeah. I w- that's the only way to really appreciate. Dude, wait a second, though. Just wait a second. Let's, let's smoke that joint there. <laughs> okay. Do you How, have to do the speed, too? No, okay. Is it would then, therefore... Then therefore be, I don't know where I'm going. I mean, either. let me put it back on the tracks. Okay, would would Super Soul be then his guardian angel? Because he's trying to direct him. Because right at the end, remember he says he's not listening. You know, I did. And his name yeah. is Super Soul. Yeah, that dude is Jesus. Hey, <laughs> well, I, mean, I think he took a hit off the death joint. He gets <laughs> it, man. 
Wow, that makes it does make a difference. Yeah, because he remember right, right before he slams the thing, he's like, he, it doesn't matter. He's not listening. No, I did find that interesting. Yeah, for sure. Well, and even, I mean, in this that context, movie has a message. Sorry, I'm wow, Jasper. Okay, so it, with Jasper's with his um, theory now, I'm upgrading my score to three point five eight. Go ahead, you, you listen. I swear, I swear. <laughs> If you if you put it on there, <laughs> if I put three point five eight on there, on there, I'm going to call you a cuck. <laughs> a cuck. Uh, well, it's on Twitter. It wouldn't uh, in caps lock. <laughs> Not the caps lock. So how else are you going to emphasize if you don't put it with in emojis? Yeah, and exclamation points. I mean, is a lowercase cuck even a cuck at all? Well, exactly. It's like you're more whispering. It's like cuck. Well, that is that. But well, that is his own lock. special kind of cuck. You put in caps lock. You're straight. You're standing on top of the Twitter's headquarters and yelling it. Okay. Um, so we got it for else. Okay. So before this cuck talk, uh, thinking about Super Soul a little more in that context, like was that when he was there on a Sunday too? Was the Sunday that he usually I doesn't? So. This is the first time he ever showed up on uh, a Sunday. Yeah. And it starts. Yeah, you're with right. The, you know the 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 gospel type music and uh uh you know for people getting ready for church and he's like yeah i'm usually not here on a sunday i, I think that's interesting and that kind of puts a new spin on basically the whole movie because he comes back from getting just beat down and stoned i was really curious about that like cuz they never say how he survived that that dude was standing there with a gun that whole scenario was that whole scenario was that interesting was, when they basically and that was what well, that was that one of the police or was that just a random guy? I feel like that no, was one that, of the, I think they were sent by the that one police officer. Okay, because there was the one police officer who, for whatever reason, really got a grudge against him. I think that's when they're trying to silence the voice of 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 God, basically, and then death and the cops were the devil. I don't know. We're going. <laughs> Okay, well, that's okay. We're beyond the star rating now, so we need to... Okay, well, now that you've said that, can I amend my score? Yes. 3.62. See, no, you're going to hit Jasper territory like I do. (laughs) At this point, I'm just like, Jasper could tell me whatever he wants. I'm just going to round it down and then put what I've... I think at this point, between your editing of other podcasts, you know, podedit.com, but... um, if you graphically, right yep. if you graphically enter three point six two, coming after you, <laughs> you have you, to change you, the graphic. If so you wait, color the star, Jasper? I'll have to do. I I set all that up. That's not even a plug-in. I'm gonna have to. I'd have to go in and actually. I'd have to go and find new, find or make new star graphics or new star like uh, PNGs with the sliver of a point six seven or whatever. Figure all that junk out. So you're I'd telling to... me when when Jasper gave that movie a two point nine, you didn't do that for him? No, he made me he made me put it back down. Oh, no, it was upgraded to three. Yeah, if it's a two point nine, it's going three. Yeah, man, I, I don't know if that's genuine. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> but you know what? Did you it at least put an asterisk next to the three? That would break it. Would break the site. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that functionality in there. <laughs> I'm kind of I going think to that's Jasper's side told... now. <laughs> I, I, I want you. the score to be in millions. Like I want to be able to do in any denomination possible. You really would have fine tuned that. I want to see in the star. I want to see half the star, then point two written in the star. Yeah, actually, can I amend my score? I want to make it pi. Can you just make it pi for me? 
3.14 and then make it go on forever. <laughs> Just a big star and then a little star. <laughs> I'm sorry, Randall. I know I'm breaking the rules. Oh, you sound sorry. You sound <laughs> real sorry. You guys know there's just not going to be any reason. He's like, you know, what? I'm sorry now. for breaking the rules. No way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Randall, we didn't even get your star rating. What What do you think? Oh, that's because I'm really t- okay. So, go with the death joint. Like, think think in your heart, Randall. What is the death joint telling you the number should be? Okay, so with the death joint, and assuming I then could like rewatch the movie. Uh, with that in mind, depending how it came across at that point, um, I could three, I guess, because, and I hate to do it, but without the death joy, I was hovering in the two point, I I guess 2.5, two sounds, two feels harsh, even for like how it struck me initially, 2.5 range, but I would go up to three or maybe I'd, I'd, come up to around where you guys are at, at 3.5 specifically. Specifically. At 3.5, zero, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, no, I... W- yeah. Okay, so without the death joint, I'm going to go 2.5, but I'm saying, like, yeah, if I could rewatch it with kind of that theory in mind, could actually see that scene that was cut out. Yeah, I'd go three, I guess. Because it's still long. I think even with a death joint, it's still a little long. But I, what's there is good. And if the kind of more baffling stuff is less baffling, or at least you, could, I could read into it more, um, yeah, that would definitely improve it for me. Well, okay, hold on. One more, one more thing. What happened if the death joint is what finally locked him into to dying? Well, you maybe. Know, I mean, you know? who knows? Like, it's because he took that downer. Yeah. Well, Hey man, you're up on a bunch of benzies. You just you gotta keep it going. You can't be taking no downers. That's what happens when you take it. This was an anti-marijuana movie, is what it, you're saying. <laughs> That's why it was cut out. Drop of, the you, marijuana, do the cocaina. You know what I'm saying? That's yeah, why it was cut the out. Kids, for a, <laughs> we need to stop doing marijuana. Switch to something better. Something that'll make you excited. Something that'll make you put some pep in your step. Yeah. And some lead in your foot. That's that's it. I'm upgrading my score to four and a half heroin overdoses. <laughs> four and a half heroin overdoses. I don't even know how to depict that visually. I don't think I guess we, just needles, I don't think we but, want to if we don't want to be flagged again. Oh, that's true. Well, we just wouldn't put it on so Patreon. I had to get handy okay, so, with the nuts. So to bookend this. Oh, sorry. Thank you. No, please bookend it, man. Uh, so to bookend this, uh, my final score, 3.535. And I think we're good there. I think I broke Randall. <laughs> that wasn't my phone making that sound. That was his brain <laughs> shutting down. <laughs> so out of the 70s, into the 70s with cell phones and modern cars, the next movie we're going to talk about is Death Proof from 2007. Oh, it's that old already. Death Proof, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, starring Kurt Russell, Zoe, is it Zoe or Zoe? I'll say Zoe. Zoe Bell, Rosario Dawson, Vanessa Folletto, Sydney Poitier. I'm going to skip her middle name or the second. No, I shouldn't do that. Oh, wait a second. Is that Sydney Poitier's daughter? It's Sydney. Oh, I guess I can't just say Sydney Poitier. Sydney Tamia 
Poitier? Poitier? Oh, oh yeah, that's a that's a Sydney Poitier's daughter. Is it for real? Yeah. Why is she also and, a Sydney? Well, he, his name is spelled S I D N E Y, and hers is S Y D N E Y. Still confusing. Have a feeling they really wanted a son. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tracy Toms, Rose McGowan, Jordan Ladd. Overview. Austin's hottest DJ, Jungle Julia, sets out into the night to unwind with her two friends, Shauna. Or is it Shana? No. Shauna and Arlene. Oh, man. You got to get that right. There's a whole it's line in the movie Shana. where she gets Wait, really upset Shana. about it. <laughs> it's... What is it that rhymes there's with banana? There's nothing worse. Shanna. Shanna yeah, banana. Say, there's nothing worse than calling somebody named Shanna Shada. Co- covertly tracking their moves is stuntman Mike, a scarred rebel leering from behind the wheel of his muscle car, revving just feet. Wow. this Revving just feet away. That, that overview really got like, wow, it's interesting. Okay. <laughs> How do you, that's such a hard movie to sum up because it's basically two movies in one. Yeah, you can just kind of pick, I guess, one side, and that's, you know. Or you'd just be like, Stuntman Mike's a creepy a creepy stunt driver who creeps on ladies, and uh, Jasper, why does he do it? Why why does he creep on the ladies, Jasper? Because he's an old perv with, that uh, is driven by teenage angst. Okay, not what I was expecting, but okay. All right, well. I was trying to... Sorry I let you down. No, no, that's... <laughs> I was trying to get a reference to that disgusting line that the uh the officer gives for his reasoning behind you know about oh uh, michael parks uh, yeah michael parks which by the way if you've done kill bill he plays the same character in that movie yep if we had done these in the proper order (laughs) okay now i'm well he'll be in kill bill too or kill bill as well death proof the quentin tarantino movie of the episode obviously i've seen this um many times Jasper, had you seen this? No. And Mike, I feel ridiculous asking, but have you seen this? Oh, love this movie. You love this movie? Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so now I'd seen Grindhouse, the double feature as it is, um, when it was released in the theaters. And I do enjoy this movie, but between the two, and that's not what this review is, but between my initial impressions between the two, I actually enjoy planet terror quite a bit more, but it's more of a, you know, flashy. It's more of a flashy popcorn flick, right? Like it's more of a exciting, ridiculous horror thing. And, uh, however, on its own, I think it's way more enjoyable or maybe I've just kind of come around to it more, but, uh, yeah, I enjoy this movie quite a bit. Jasper, did you like this watch? Yeah, it was started off really gruesome, but uh it was it was it was an interesting movie. I will say I did enjoy watching your reaction to this movie. Obviously, we don't always watch the movies together, but we did in this case and I think it was the Rose McGowan scene when it takes its turn, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, your your reaction to that was pretty great because you apparently didn't know like anything about the stuntman Mike situation or that whole angle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, it's such a great setup the first time you see it too when that happens when that turn happens. I love that part when he says like you go left or right. Mm-hmm. That's where the Quentin Tarantino dialogue really works. I mean, it's Tarantino dialogue through and through the the whole movie, but. 
at first it really like, and maybe it's more the jungle Julia character, like her, I don't know if it's her delivery or just like he wrote her a certain way, but she is like pure Tarantino dialogue distilled into it's like most pure concentrated form. And it's, it's a little much for me. It's a little much. It's that whole, like we've mentioned it on other episodes, the whole like cool dialogue for the sake of cool dialogue. And sometimes it's just like, it's a little too cutesy. Um, but then you get to stuff like that stuntman Mike scene where, yeah, if you're going left or right, where it just works. And I did enjoy that. If for some reason, listener, you don't know, this was released originally alongside Planet Terror, which is directed by Robert Rodriguez as Grindhouse. Did not do well. I did not do as well as they were hoping, which did disappoint me because I really loved the idea of it. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, I don't need sequels to these movies, but I'd like more of that. More double features, please. That was fun. Did not do well. And this is this is apparently the movie that Tarantino just kind of tends to ignore. Which I think is interesting when you look at the rest of his filmography since. Yeah, you hinted at something. And yeah, I'm excited to hear hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think if you look at Death Proof, which obviously I guess is not recognized as one of his movies, because if it was, The Hateful Eight would not be the eighth movie by Quentin Tarantino. It would be the ninth. But Death Proof, I think, is really the point in Quentin Tarantino's career when he just fully switched to genre filmmaking that is based off of 70s cinema, specifically Italian cinema. Because Death Proof is where he just kind of... And I think... In the middle of the movie, you see, remember the part where it goes from scratches to all of a sudden it's clean? Yep. And we're now in modern day. It's almost like, and I know this is weird to say, but like a reborn Quentin Tarantino is that like he's bringing this out of a different era. And if you look at the movies he's made directly after it, Inglorious Bastards, that was a movie that was based on another movie from the 70s called Inglorious Bastards. Now, it's not the same movie but Inglorious Bastards, the original one, is a 1970s movie starring Fred Williamson uh, and a couple other guys. And they basically play uh, American soldiers who go behind enemy lines into Nazi territory to stop the Nazis from having a nuclear bomb. And they do wow. the whole thing where they go undercover and all of that. He basically took that idea, made it into a completely different movie, which is Inglorious Bastards, the one from 2009. Django Unchained. Django is specifically a uh, term they would use for movies. Specifically, everybody knows Django starring Franco Nero. It's his, I believe the first one was the late 60s. Um, and they made quite a few sequels to that one with Franco Nero, who appears in Django Unchained. Uh, but Django was a name they would use for all sorts of Italian productions back in that time where the character's name would be Django. And Hateful Eight... That is a really reminiscent to me of a spaghetti western mixed with a giallo film, which is like Italian cinema and uh, all sorts of twists and turns. And they could t- it could take place in one room or two locations. And there's all sorts of characters that have backstories together and it gets crazier and crazier. And in my opinion, if you look at it ever since Death Proof, he's kind of just flipped the switch and said, I'm just going to make the movies that I've always loved to watch. And that is 70s cinema, mostly, I'd say, Italian cinema and uh, some American productions. So. That's super interesting, and I mean, obviously, you haven't seen it, so you couldn't say, but where do you think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will fall into that? Well, looking at that, it looks very reminiscent of like a 60s or 70s uh, 
low budget Hollywood type of production. Okay. There is definitely that switch during the movie though. It does go from scratchy, scratchy. I mean the first half of the movie to the second half, the second half feels, I like the second half more, but I like where the first half goes more. The first half has the first half goes horror movie. And the second half is your more typical 70s car chase thriller type thing. I, I guess primarily only because it doesn't end with a whole bunch of deaths. <laughs> but yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, you didn't like the car tire to the face? Oh, I love it, dude. Uh, I mean, <laughs> which sounds perverse to say, but. Did you what now? Okay, when that happened, did you turn to Jasper to see the reaction? I watched his reaction <laughs> through the whole thing. <laughs> as soon as okay, so he I don't know. As soon as like we kind of that scene starts, not the actual like death scene, but as soon as they're in the car, she's got her leg sticking out. You said you said this is going to make me not ever want to put my leg out the window, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yep. <laughs> so what were you expecting going into this, Jasper? And uh how did, how did it strike you? I thought at first it was going to be like he drove by and knocked her leg off mm-hmm. or, you know, or he slammed into the car. But I didn't think it was going to be like go through the car and then in through them. I didn't see it as like a horror film. I thought it was going to be just kind of like what we watched with, with uh, Vanishing Point. But mm-hmm. I mean, it, it turned quick. Mm-hmm. Turned quick. <laughs> I really, I just like how he approaches that scene because, pun intended, it's got impact, but he... The just doing it four times from the point of view of every character in the car, I like, and then culminating with the tire to the face, where he like you hear the engine rev up as soon as the tire hits her face, so it's literally peeling off, peeling out on her face. It's it's so ridiculous and over the top, but 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 not. It's it's I don't know. I love it though. It's and the leg, extreme. The legs getting down the road. Oh, oh god, it's so gross. Now I think there's some interesting parallels between this and the first movie, where if you look at the character of Stuntman Mike, right, he has to build a car that is death proof, right? So he's purposely making a machine that will allow him to escape death, which is the exact opposite of Kowalski, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he also drives a black car as opposed to a white car. And he's also trying to cause harm to people. It's almost like he's the exact opposite of Kowalski. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. He's the anti-Kowalski. Yeah. uh, Where he doesn't, I mean, to where he, they say he got banged up in that first accident, but we don't really follow him at all after that point until he comes back in towards the end of the second half of the movie. Yeah, we just see 18 months later, his car's back, he's back, like nothing happened. And it, it's played for laughs, but I find it interesting that he, and he's supposed to have been a stuntman. You assume he was actually a stuntman at some point, and uh, stunt people are tough. However, he turns into, like, he's just wailing, weeping, like, towards the end of the movie. Like, he gets shot in the arm, and I'm sure, yes, I'm sure that sucks, but he just looks so weak. Like, as soon as, like... The attack is pointed at him. He completely is just coming apart. So I don't know. I find that pretty interesting. Well, I wonder if he's supposed to kind of represent death because the, the women that he chooses, like not necessarily like they've done anything bad, but they're, 
they're they're immoral, I guess, immoral, right? So like they all do drugs, they talk about adultery, they're stealing at one point. There's all sorts of things they do that like I guess get classified as like those seven deadly sins, right? Mm-hmm. And he selected these girls for a reason. We don't really find out why, but we do know that like, well, in the case of Jungle Julia, for example, vanity plays a big part of it. And he seems to take exception with that, especially when talking to her at that one part with the billboards all over town and all of that and how he treats her. Uh, and I just feel like, is he supposed to be like that Charling Rampling character that got cut out of your movie for Vanishing Point? Is he supposed to be kind of like the embodiment of death, like the Grim Reaper, like that he's coming to collect? And I don't know if that's intentional or not. But it seemed like an interesting connection basically between potentially between this and Vanishing Point, like the anti Kowalski, but the embodiment of that life and death type of thing. How do you guys feel about the dialogue in this movie? I mean, I think it's fine. It's Tarantino doing dialogue. It's the movie's primarily dialogue. I think the second half benefits from they establish the uh, what do they what do they refer to it as that stunt that they're they're going to do the uh, oh ship sail yeah yeah so it's got that like here's a thing that we as a viewer, we know we're leading up to. And so the characters can talk about that. So that I think it, the second half benefits a little bit from that. Tarantino's good at like having dialogue that or writing dialogue that can be about nothing or be about whatever cheeseburgers or whatever, while still kind of like increasing tension. I don't know. Inglorious Bastards is great about that, but how does it strike you guys here? Cause in general and appropriately, this is a much more kind of meandering movie. Like like Jasper, I always give you a hard time for your attention span. So like yeah. how did how did this movie strike you? Was it was it all right? Were you totally into it? Did it kind of lose you at all or? Yeah, like I feel I feel like I'm sorry. I feel like that's a leading question, but you know what I mean. Well, the like the you know, like we were kind of pointing out that Tarantino likes to do that like over like when they have the chats, they're like really in depth and and they're like explaining something. I was getting like, I was like, oh my God, are they just going to sit here and talk all the time? But then like the action sequences, I was like, I was really into, especially the second half of the movie. I was really into that part of the movie. Mike, how do you feel about, I guess, how do you feel about Tarantino dialogue in general? And you said you love this movie. So obviously it's not an issue here, but how do you feel like this movie might compare or differ from uh, to other Tarantino movies? I feel like this is like when Tarantino finally just, kind of went all out and has absolutely no filter with the dialogue. Interesting. Especially considering, you know, when you look at the earlier movies, like Reservoir Dogs, a little more tempered. And then Pulp Fiction is kind of where you get to see more of like the Tarantino, I guess we know today. Jackie Brown's a step back in terms of that, but it still definitely has that Tarantino flavor to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I'd say probably like a Kill Bill is where we get more of like what we see in Tarantino today. And like Inglorious Bastards, I think, is where it absolutely has reached its peak. And that in Hateful Eight as well, where it's just his style is just um, at this point, just unfiltered. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an acquired taste. Um, I think in the sense of the first half of this movie, and I'm not sure it's intentional or not, the characters are almost unlikable. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that, like, Jungle Julia does not come off as being cool. She comes off as being a jerk. Uh, that's that's got to be intentional, right? 
because I I don't know. That's the maybe not because she still she comes across as being a jerk, but she is the most to me Tarantino sounding character in the whole movie. Um, so maybe it wasn't intentional. Maybe whatever. Maybe that's just the attitude he likes. But yeah, but then you have like uh, the Rose McGowan character who's like, what is she doing? Is she she almost sounds like a Mae West type of character or something. Like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. I mean, beyond the fact that, like, beyond the kind of stylistic change, because there is a kind of a style change in the first half of the movie, and maybe he maybe he used some alternate footage for the, like, solo movie release. It's been a while since I've watched it, so I, c- I couldn't say for sure, but there's even scenes where he kind of emulated the kind of somewhat rough camera work of a lower budget, quick, quickly produced movie where... Um, <laughs> Like, I want to say there's a shot where they're all talking at the table and the camera noticeably not, it doesn't jerk, but it like noticeably and awkwardly pulls back before then going in towards a kind of a slower, a slower kind of pan up towards, I think, Jungle Julia. But it's, it's, it's a camera move that perfectly emulates bad camera work. And watching it this time, I'm like, you know, I know like that's kind of the thing, the, especially the beginning part of this movie has some rough cuts, some obvious jump cuts. You know, it's intentional. It's supposed to be like a rough film, uh, but I'm still surprised he did it like, you know, he would kind of compromise the shot to do it that way. But by the second half of the movie, like you said, the film grain stuff, like it's cleared up the the extra unnecessary film grain and the scratches it's uh, is gone and so is any of that kind of rough cuts, the jump cuts and that uh, and any of the rough camera work, the intentionally rough camera work. Yeah, it almost becomes a, a completely different movie, which is yeah. kind of like why I find this movie so fascinating. Why I like it so much is that it seems on the surface like such a, a small, dumb movie. But every time I go back and watch it, there's more stuff that's just it's like for me, you know, I'm a huge Stanley Kubrick fan. And like, I think most people would regard eyes wide shut as being like a failed masterpiece. Right. And I don't know if you guys have seen that movie or not. I have, I think I've seen it, but it's been a long time. Yeah. But like eyes wide shut to me, death proof is like that for Tarantino, because every time I go back and watch eyes wide shut, I find something new and fascinating about that movie that I never saw before. And I start to realize that, it's not that it was a miss. It's just that it's such a deep movie with so many unexplored themes and things that are kind of laid bare in the film that it's so incredibly difficult to analyze on first viewing. And I know that sounds dumb for a movie like Death Proof, but when you go through it, every time I watch it, there's just something new. And like, yeah, I'm starting to realize like that first part of it is not genuine. Like the whole idea of adding the film grain and the fake movements and the cuts and everything, it almost seems too much. Mm -hmm. And then the dialogue, it's almost too much. Like it goes so far into just like what people would criticize Tarantino for doing. And then all of those characters die. And then we're reborn with a completely clean and new version of almost the same movie. And it's it's much, much better. Yeah, that's super interesting because I find the characters much more tolerable in the second half. The dialogue, it's still, you know, it's very talky. It's 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 Tarantino dialogue, but it's I don't find it as that kind of cute. It do, I don't find it as cutesy 
and in a way i i guess another way is kind of gaggy like it's not as overdone as the first half of the movie for sure i mean did you guys feel bad when the characters in the first half died wednesday not really not really interesting I mean, like the only I one mean, the way they die yes <laughs> Honestly, yeah but like you weren't rooting for them were you the only one that I really found somewhat likable, and I think maybe this is just because the movie makes a point to, well, Stuntman Mike himself points out kind of a vulnerability in her, but it's it's the chick that gets the tire to the face. But she's also the one that sees it coming and kind of embraces it, closes her and eyes. But then she's also kind of a jerk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. They They all are. <laughs> Because I think, like, what, your only protagonist, really, in this movie, like, I guess by default, the only character that you kind of root for, I guess, well, the three girls, really, but, like, Rosario Dawson, kind of, like, almost by default becomes your protagonist in this movie. Mm -hmm. And she seems like the only one that's almost relatable, because everybody else is just living in their own their own world like again the the first half of the movie is like a 70s movie but like you said they've added a cell phone which is very bizarre to me i still don't know what the point is in all of that first part of the movie and then like i guess eli roth and the other guy they look like they're out of modern day but all the girls look like they're from a 70s movie yeah and and i mean obviously there's a lot of muscle car well there's a lot there's three muscle cars in this movie but the other cars are modern day cars. I think the car that the girls are driving is, I mean, it's a smaller kind of a, well, 2007 modern car. But the look, like the film itself, but also the character, the, the girls, the style, the clothes, those very 70s. But doesn't it become a, like a jarring, it's almost a jarring image when we go in that last car chase, which, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about maybe the greatest car chase I've ever seen in a movie when it goes from the country roads to the freeway and then all of a sudden everybody's driving like modern cars with just this 70s style car chases, it almost like jarring image when they get onto the freeway and they're like crashing into escalates and stuff. Yeah. It's really weird. And to me, it almost feels like, well, why not, why not just make it a, per a proper period piece? Like, I mean, I kind of like the, sometimes uh, I, on, on the Grolux podcast proper, I've, talked about chilling adventures of sabrina a bunch and part of the thing i like about the style of that tv show is it does have that kind of anachronistic feel it's modern day there's people with laptops and cell phones but at the same time it looks like the 50s there's like somebody's they've got the old style letterman's jacket high school letterman's jackets and they're driving cherry red 57 chevys or whatever so sometimes i like that that kind of anachronistic setting but in a, in a scenario like this, it kind of feels like, well, why not just commit to the period? Make it a 70s movie. Because there's the things that aren't 70s in there are so minimal. And, so, and that's where I think it reminds me of like my, my theory on like how this is almost a change in Tarantino's career. Is that like that's kind of what he's done now is that. He's like almost fighting with himself on like making a modern movie versus making, you know, a 70s movie like the stuff he grew up with or the stuff he idolizes. Because you look at like Django, for example, and that's a straight period piece. However, the music score is all hip hop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in there, he he definitely embraces that that clash 
to me in the in Django it makes kind of sense and it doesn't it's definitely out of place but it doesn't ruin the movie not to say that the cell phone in this ruins the movie but it feels like there's a purpose to it in Django whereas here it doesn't really feel like there's a purpose to to the Yeah the, the one clash. thing I can't I can't figure out in this movie is the whole part with the cell phone like why is that in there to show that she's a horrible speller Yeah <laughs> But also like, okay, so we don't have much sympathy for her. We never see the guy she's been texting. Why does he place such a strong emphasis on showing that phone, changing the music, changing the tone, and continually like bringing us into this conversation that's never going to have any sort of payoff or any relevance to what's going on in the movie? I'm real curious about that too because the only thing I can think is, is that the only way he could think to bring in that the love the love music, the love scored, like old B grade movies would do that. Or just even old movies, but where they, they bring in some love music that just didn't just fell out of place to the rest of the movie. But the point is that's what you're supposed to be feeling in that scene. And it, is the cell phone thing, his only way to like really bring that in. Did he just want to use a, a, a kind of a jarring piece of score like that? Have her have a little moment, but it still doesn't work if it's it's just a love moment with a cell phone because you don't ever see the guy. You don't get any backstory. For the most part, it doesn't seem like, I guess maybe she mentions, does she even mention that she has a guy? I think she does in passing says something like she, she has a guy she's been talking to. But again, nobody's seen him. We never get to see him. I could see maybe something like that being used to give her death more impact, but it doesn't because you don't ever, like he's not a human. <laughs> She yeah. texts somebody who never texts back. So like you don't get, there's no added connection for her. So you don't get that added impact of her losing that connection when she dies. I don't know. It's, it's very strange. Yeah. And she's just like so unlikable. <laughs> like it's just kind of weird. Is that like we follow her, we're supposed to like her, but like you just can't because every turn you're just like, she does something that kind of bugs you, at least for me, I guess. Then you learn that she, you know, did something weird to get all those billboards up. And also like, why do they just have random billboards of her around the town? Like who, like why would you need like six billboards of a local DJ around Austin? You're right though. They, they, there's a lot of just stuff in that first half. And maybe that's the point. There's just a lot of, maybe that's his attempt to make the, the MacGuffin that is these main characters, quote unquote, main characters of the movie, make them all dying seem more shocking because well what about this and what about this and it seems like you set up a bunch of stuff but it doesn't really feel that way to me it if that was the goal it does i guess it's a little shocking that they all just die but okay maybe we don't like those girls very much right i mean we tolerate them but we're also like well i don't know if i'd ever like hang out with these people because they seem kind of mean they're even mean to each other like even the jokes they have with each other are very mean spirited and they're like, ah, I'm just kidding. And it's like, well, you might've been kidding, but it's still, you know, a jerk move. Maybe that's the setup. Like we know what happens because obviously what stuntman Mike does to him and you get a tire to the face. Maybe that sets up the idea that when we see the next group of girls that we learn to like, we're scared of what's going to happen to them. That would make sense. And the next group of girls are kind of rude to each other, but they seem more like genuine friends because friends can be that way. But the first group of girls seem like, I don't know, they feel more like snotty high school friends, you know? 
Yeah, um, and like even the guys are hanging out because like Eli Roth has that whole part where he's just like ripping on stuntman Mike at the bar for no reason. Like he doesn't know this guy, and he's just being a complete jerk to him. It's just weird. We just don't have any of that, I think, in the second half of the movie. Like you, you actually, you like those people. Hey, Jasper. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> no, I was looking to see. I was looking to see if there was anything about that cell phone. I thought the cell phone was for us. I thought that maybe she was like, she never saw this guy, and she was just texting him, and it was him. That's um, how. But well, why would it get the love? <laughs> like the. Stuntman Mike's catfishing well, her. Was, well, no, like, I kind of love like, that idea. He didn't show up. She's like complaining that he didn't show up. And I was thinking that's how he was tracking him. Now, there are some musical stings, one in which particular made me very angry. Oh, it made you angry. Oh, yeah. Now, this goes back to my show, The Grind Bin. When they are in the big car chase, there are a few musical cues from 70s movies, one of which is a a chase song from an Italian cop movie. But Randall, another one is from the movie tentacles. <laughs> it, really? And I can't tell you how upset I was watching the movie last night, realizing that that's where that came from. So, so is QT a fan? You think he must be, or at least from the composer, because there's a part where it plays that harpsichord sting right when they met when when Stuntman Mike uh thinks he got away. You hear this, Da-da-da-da. and it's the exact song that like the musical sting that plays when the, the tentacle shows up in tentacles. That's so funny, and I was so upset by that. <laughs> Doesn't he usually reference interesting, like good uh, old school movies? Man, that's funny. Yeah, so I was um, I was pretty last night. Did you, did you get like a little PS, uh, PTSD flashback for a moment? I did. I knew it. I saw John Houston <laughs> and Shelley Winters in her hat. Uh, yeah, you can hear. Uh, it's an old episode of The Grind Bin, but probably the most hated movie we ever covered. So thanks for nothing, Tarantino. <laughs> thanks for nothing bringing that up again so with the the car chase in this movie you know you said earlier that you like that sense of danger mm-hmm. how about this one this one's this one okay this one is i mean obviously they kind of ramp it up they they have someone <laughs> on the hood almost the entire time yeah that's um, real that's not there's no cg in that movie that is incredibly dangerous that character um, Zoe, Zoe. Yeah, Zoe. Uh, she's a real life stunt woman. She plays herself in the movie. That's how I realized that I was like, oh, I think I did these out of order because I know Tarantino uh, come across her for Kill Bill. Uh, she stunt doubled for Uma Thurman, and I was like, oh, wait, whoops. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, she's actual stunt stunt person. I wish there were a few more like further back shots, and I know it doesn't change anything or make it any different but i the speed felt real it definitely seemed dangerous there are some shots especially once she she loses grip of one of the one of the belts where it's like oh well at this point she should just be swinging off the side um it did feel dangerous but i don't know what i'm saying i feel like there could have been a couple (laughs) it could have been more dangerous i want to see more lives in danger um, no, I don't know. Yeah, it was good. It was good. 
definitely more so than you would see in most movies because I know Tarantino is just anti-digital effects, like just a stickler to where Jasper, you were saying you looked up at some point, the scratches on the first half of the movie are actual is actually scratched up film. And I was like, well, that would actually make a lot of sense to me because I could see Tarantino not even wanting to use a digital film filter, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, that, uh, that sense of danger in that scene, like, even though I know how it's going to turn out, I still cringe when I watch that chase scene, just because her hanging off the roof of that car going at like 90 miles an hour while another car is still slamming into her. It's just nuts. Once she gets flipped around facing forward, I don't know why. I Actually, you'd think she'd have a little bit more grip that way, but that feels more scary to me. I guess it's just because she's like basically facing the ground and facing directly in front of them at that point. But, and it goes for, it goes for quite a while. The whole, the chase as a whole goes for quite a while. It's kind of a two part deal where there's the stuff with her on the hood. Then once it kind of flips and they're chasing him, I'm not sure how long the chase is. It's pretty long, but I watched vanishing point earlier today and I'm like, I just watched a movie that was nothing but car chase. So, you know, this could probably gone on a little longer, <laughs> <laughs> but actually it feels like a, it's an appropriate length. It's longer than most car chases for sure. So I think it's an appropriate length. I don't know. This movie doesn't feel like it drags to me. Like I remember it feeling initially. Um, and maybe I that's think it's because a... like when you pair it after uh, Planet Terror. Yeah. It's a tough one to play second. It had to be played second, but it's just it's tough to follow in a double feature like that. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jasper, what do you think of this car chase? Because I know you, um, well, I think you're not so much a muscle car guy, but we watched The Transporter um, mm-hmm. because when you were a young, a wee lad, that was a movie you liked a, a lot for the car chase stuff. Um, so how did the car chase stuff in this strike you? I like this because it's not like stupid, like fast, furious driving. It's uh-huh. like it's like true to true to the wheel driving. His car is is built to take the beating, but you know it still has its its weaknesses. But I like that he he must have like a crap ton of these cars, <laughs> and he always has a new one. <laughs> I did like the flip. Now that he's being chased, that mm-hmm. was kind of that was kind of interesting how they did that. Yeah, I don't think he had the skull in the second part of the movie on his car, right? They removed nope. that. Yeah. Yeah, no skull on it. Yeah, it was, I mean, and he didn't have, it was obviously reinforced in there, but he didn't have the whole box inside the camera box and that. he. It was a little bit different layout in the second car. Yeah. One thing I will say, because Mike, you'd mentioned earlier about it being kind of jarring when they get onto the, uh, you know, the highway or interstate or whatever it is. And you see all the modern day cars. One thing that that kind of put my mind is watching these two muscle cars that are just scraped up and beat up. And I'm like, well, no wonder we don't really see car chases like that anymore because modern cars, you can't do that. You take, you scrape up the side of it. It's just fiberglass. It's just going to be shattered away. And uh, whereas for the most part, these cars look, they looked rough, but they're still like, it's a hunk of metal. It's still intact. What do we think of the little comic bit with the guy that's selling the car? Because I'm so torn. Like, it's it's a, such a minor thing. It's fine. And it doesn't feel out of place given what Tarantino's aiming for, like the kind of movie he's aiming for. But just the, like, uh, the 
the guy that they owns the car that they're looking at and that they leave the uh, actress cheerleader, whatever she is there with him. It's so goofy. Yeah, I thought it was weird because he's like basically he's from Adam Sandler movies and he's basically playing the same character he plays in Sandler movies. Yeah, it's that guy with the low voice or the real like kind of uh, throaty voice. Which begs the question, what happened when they were gone with the car? Yeah, it's very true to like Grindhouse fashion where you just like have this subplot that's just completely abandoned. Just left left hanging. Yeah. Yeah. Rosario Dawson also, she straight up murders something Mike. And I kind of yeah, love Yeah, that's it. so weird how they do that after the credits too. Uh-huh. Like how uh-huh. they do it after the end and all of that. And then you just cut back and that happens. It amuses me. She high high stepped him. I do love that smush of the head. That feels the <laughs> most that feels the most appropriate to the kind of movie those kind of movies, you know? Yeah, very tentacles. Yeah, because it's like it feels it's it's a little cheesy. It's not yeah. super gory or anything, but it, I mean the idea of it's gross enough and it's quick enough to where you're like, ooh, but really when you look at it, it's like it's pretty cheesy. She's obviously just stomping a, a dummy's head. That's what he gets, though, for uh, from eating nachos the way that I never want to eat, eat them ever. Dude, what a disgusting intro for a character in a movie. Stuntman Mike eating nachos at that bar is so gross. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, you guys don't slop them up like that? It's just, it's, it's beyond greasy. It just looks wet and watery. and. I don't know. Maybe that's how people in Austin eat their nachos. I don't know. Oh, I've never been. <laughs> it's so gross. <laughs> All right, Jasper. It's like, the, it's like the ASMR video you never want. <laughs> Kurt Russell just. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kurt Russell eats some nachos. Jasper, with yes. this being a first time watch for you, how do you feel about this movie? And where do you put this in the Tarantino movies we've watched so far? Um, I like the intensity of this one. Mm-hmm. The just. I think they did the car chases right and, and kind of the, you know, hunting them down or whatever, kind of the stalker movie there. And the Tarantino, I mean, it's like, I want to say it's in the middle of the field. Okay. You know, if not a little, little lesser than middle of the field. But I thought it was, I thought it was pretty entertaining. It was pretty intense with, like I said, just with the gore that I didn't think was coming. Mm-hmm. And then it did. <laughs> but yeah. Okay, Mike, we know you love it. How does this rank with you? I mean, you don't have to put in a specific ranking, but how does this compare to other Tarantino movies for you? I think it's interesting because like, it's not um, traditionally what people would expect necessarily from Tarantino, yet it is what you would expect. Because like, it's got the dialogue, it's got the, the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different because it's shorter than anything he's done except for maybe Reservoir Dogs. But as far as how it fits in, I don't know why it's not counted. I think it's like definitely Tarantino and it's kind of like what brought us more of like what we see in modern Tarantino movies where he's just completely gone into genre filmmaking and like abandoned any sense of like, uh, I guess, bringing like high art to exploitation. Mm -hmm. And the idea that like, it's so funny to me that deal like Django gets nominated for best picture. Where it's like a movie like that would never be respected back in, you know, the seventies when Franco Nero was making these Django movies, you know? 
but he makes, I guess, high art out of exploitation. And I think this is like kind of the birth of that, like where it's just like the ultra, you know, I'm, I'm letting every all the conventions aside. I'm just going to do what I want to do. I think it's a, an integral piece to Tarantino's filmography. I think it's a really good movie. And, I, and I'm sad that like it's not really talked about. Uh, this is kind of the reason why I wanted to do this movie is that. You know, you guys might have just even skipped over this one because I think a lot of people do when it comes to movies he's directed. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we did. We covered four rooms. We're we're doing. A, oh boy, we covered four <laughs> rooms, and and he didn't direct it, but we even did True Romance. So we're hitting them all. We're hitting them all. Oh, uh, Tony Scott. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so I like this movie. I like this quite a bit. I actually like this viewing. More so, like, I think this kind of went up a notch for me. And maybe it's the context of, maybe it's just revisiting these Tarantino movies. It's been a, quite a while since I watched a lot of these. And this season, Tarantino has given me excuse to rewatch some of them. But prior, I don't know if I disagree with it now, but prior, I at least understood, like, why Tarantino kind of considered this one of his lesser movies. I was like, yeah, yeah I kind of get it. I kind of get it. But... I think you're right, Mike, in that it is kind of sad that it doesn't get a lot of recognition from from people, from viewers and stuff, just in general, in context with the, the rest of his filmography, because it's worthwhile, and I think it's definitely benefits from separating it from Planet Terror. I think, too, because like the Grindhouse movie was just, everybody's just expecting it to be something, you know, like... Uh, that exercise in genre filmmaking and nobody knew what to expect. And I think that death proof was kind of a letdown in that respect. Like when it was packaged in that movie, cause you got all those crazy trailers and planet terror. And then you have this movie that just kind of doesn't fit with the rest of what was going on in there. I think the way I always, the way I looked at it at the, even at the time, like I enjoyed, I enjoyed both movies, but my thought on it was, I feel like Tarantino nailed the concept way better but rodriguez made a much more entertaining movie and in general i don't i still don't disagree with that death proof's probably a way better movie than planet terror but planet terror is you know it's like i said at the beginning it's flashy it's flashy popcorn flavor. yeah i don't know where i would place it compared to other ones but i like it i like it i'm, I'm gonna go ahead and jump into into star ratings i'm gonna say 3.5. You know what? I think you're right, actually. 3.5, which seems low. It's, it's When I think about it, it's hard for me to give it four. I, I'm going to go with gut feeling, yeah. 3.5. I'm giving it 3.5, but a high 3.5. Almost a 3.67 or something. Oh, wow. Just broke them <laughs> down. <laughs> well, <laughs> Jasper just shaking his head. Well, I'll tell you this. Mine for me, four stars. But if I'm going to go with the joint from the Angel of Death, <laughs> it's going to be four point two eight three. See, I'm going to have, I'm going to have to like <laughs> figure out what it's going to be. Two rating sections <laughs> with the joint from the Angel of Death and without the Angel of Death joint. How about you, Jasper? What do you think? <sighs> You're just you're, he's reeling from the ratings thing because I'm always the stickler. I'm always just the stickler. Yep. And we get just, a guest on, dude, and it, we just you throw just, the rules out the window. <laughs> well, okay, Mitty, you're loving that Mike 
jumped on your side and is trying to break me down. I'm just playing along, all right? I got to be nice to the guests. He's on my side. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> I'm going four. Four out of five. Oh. Oh, wow. Just a straight four? Mm-hmm. And then if it was Angel of Death, Doobie rolling over here, it'd be four and a half. Four and a half point five six. <laughs> Wow, I, I so, like that rating. So a four point, and a half. A point five six of four and a half. No, it's four and a half point five six. <laughs> I like that. Get it right. <laughs> oh, that's better. That's better than the what I expected was the obvious joke. The four point two zero. Get it? Hey, hey. Oh. Uh, that's not that's hey. not your humor at all, though, to Jasper, is it? Yeah, this we're we're Patreon's gonna. Flag it. <laughs> yeah. um, it's not going to be on Patreon. They're going to still, still flag it. All right, we need to. Oh, we need to. We need to bring this meandering conversation in. Uh, so, wow, guys, the, the studio. Somebody, something's wrong with the studio head because he's like, I want cars and I want, I want big concepts and I want to. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they just got like a 70s guy in there. Whatever. How would you combine Vanishing Point and Death Proof into one cinematic universe? Let's hand it to the guests. Do you have any ideas? Do you want to go roll with this, Mike? Well, I'd say that they are kind of connected, and I've said my theories a little bit on why they are. And I believe they do kind of exist. I mean, Death Proof does exist in a world where Vanishing Point exists because they constantly reference it, and we're using the same car from Vanishing Point. Yeah. And what's interesting is that whenever somebody drives that car from Vanishing Point, they seem to, I guess, be death-proof, but not really because Kowalski dies at the end of it. So (laughs) I would think, though, that, like, okay, if you're going to make another movie connected in this universe, I would use the girl who's driving. Her name is Kim, I believe. And she's a stunt woman. yeah, Yeah, the second group of girls, the one that's driving. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I could see her going on, like, because she loved that bloodlust, right? Mm-hmm. From killing stuntman Mike. And I could see her becoming, like, her own sort of vigilante. But instead of being looking for people who've, like, been sinning, I guess, who stuntman Mike is looking for, I could see her going after people like stuntman Mike and having an almost sort of, like cruising around the country, going after preying on men who prey on women. Okay. okay. Sort of like a continuation of it. And I would say if she didn't get killed, jungle Julia could easily be your soul. Um, super soul character. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's perfect. Oh man. Okay. I like that. Uh, and I feel like what you could have like, say some sort of connection, like that jungle Julia was actually the daughter of super soul. You could easily make that type of connection, I'm guessing. Oh, and guys, you know what? You didn't get to see the part, but what if Kowalski had a kid with the angel of death that stopped him on the side of the road, right? Because he did he did sleep with her. She, and, she probably did. It just cut out of our versions. Yeah, and what if that kid was Stuntman Mike? Oh, yes. Yes, because that would make sense. Like, if he's the anti-Kowalski, that totally makes sense. Right, and he would be about that age. 
So that would make him targeting Jungle Julia that may, make even more sense if he's the anti Kowalski. He's going after the uh, yeah yeah. That's great. <laughs> That's way better than I was expecting. I... Yeah, he's got he's got dad issues, Randall. That's why he's going after that that vanishing point car. You don't like that car. <laughs> you don't like that car. <laughs> Uh, that's why he always drives black cars. You don't like yeah, white cars. Yeah, exactly. You don't like a Challenger. Uh, uh, you got anything, Jasper? What do you got? So this is my theory: is that Kowalski dies, air quotes, dies at the end of Vanishing Point. Okay, mm-hmm. just so we can help with the, the con- continuity. Vanishing Point was a biopic about him, played by him. Documentary. Let's go documentary, right? Oh, 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 okay. So okay. when he dies, the the angel of death that we did not see uh-huh. takes him and makes him into basically the next Reaper. Uh-huh. And then that's when he starts. So he is, he is uh, Stuntman Mike. Okay. Okay. And then his, his car is just powered, you know, he makes him death proof, which he can't die anyway, technically. Okay. Wait, oh, wait, wait, let me make sure I'm tracking this. Uh, Kowalski? Is now is, Stuntman, is Stuntman Mike. Mike. Okay. Yeah, but okay. demon. So basically like a demon form. Yeah, yeah. Of Kowalski. Okay, so then we get, so we're going through that, going through that. So then since Rosario Dawson's character kills him, she now is the, is the Reaper. Oh, I okay. like this. Okay, uh-huh. So... Basically, he just went after him because they're driving his old car. But so she's now the Reaper, and now she's going after the targets of of the death, the death doobie demon person, the death doobie <laughs> demon death. person. Okay, death. okay, I like that. Okay, so I have thank thank God I got an idea. I got an idea during your pitch, <laughs> inspired by your pitch, but a different way. So stuntman Mike. Was what was okay? Wait, what was the actor's name who played uh, um, Kowalski? Uh, Barry Newman. Barry Newman. Stuntman Mike was Barry Newman's stuntman on Vanishing oh. Point, the movie. He was because this is the best connection because Vanishing Point is established in Death Proof as a movie. Stuntman Mike is a stuntman who would have been working around that time period. He had he had a stunt that went wrong. See, that's why that's why uh, vanishing points, the ending and beginning is a little it's a little interesting, a little odd, maybe a little confusing because uh, that that <laughs> the car explosion, all that that wasn't supposed to happen. Uh, so they didn't know what to do with the other stuff they had shot where that didn't happen, so they threw it at the beginning, made it very artistic, and you know it's all good. They they're like layers upon layers. That's some happy accidents. <laughs> so anyway, stuntman Mike was the stuntman. He was in that car that exploded at the end of Vanishing Point. That's how he gets the messed up face. Kind of ruined him, kind of ruined his career. And that's what put him on a path of, uh, you know, I mean, he had the tendencies as we might see in flashbacks or maybe a future prequel to Vanishing Point or what, to, I guess, to the movie about the making of Vanishing Point. But uh, he that sent him on the path to uh, what he becomes in death proof. So what we're going to get, what I'm setting up is like a film or a series of films. That's basically like charting, you know, 
we'll basically make him our our Norman Bates, right? <laughs> I don't know the the psycho sequels, whatever. But we'll follow we'll follow Stuntman Mike as he kind of his career goes downhill. You know that's why he gets so upset. He's aging at this point. By the time uh, Death Proof comes around, so he gets upset that the the young girls don't know any of the things he's talking about, and we'll we'll follow his journey downward into darkness. That's it. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> that's it. I like it. Yeah, I mean, I won't lie. The, the climax is a little disappointing, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, Mike. I appreciate you coming on and talking about these movies with us. Oh, of course. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, I mean, God, imagine what imagine what our Vanishing Point review would have been if Mike wasn't here. <laughs> I never get it. to talk. Yeah, I never get to talk like this on the grind bin because we're always having fun. I never get to break down movies on the uh, actual thematic elements <laughs> in the. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that for sure. So, Mike, where can people find you? Well, you can find me at uh, the Grindbin Podcast. Just look for it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else. Uh, we're around. You can hear us uh, weekly, every you know Wednesday-ish. An episode will come out, <laughs> time permitting to edit it. Um, in the month of May, we are uh, we have been uh, sent on um, a journey around the world, and we're doing various movies from different countries. Uh, a recurring character on our show, Mr. Crown, has locked us all uh, into a trunk and send us around the world to uh, watch various movies in various locations. And we're trying to find our way out. And uh, <laughs> obviously I have. <laughs> Temporarily. Yeah. Uh, have you done how house? Have you done house yet? House. I've not, not done house. The Japanese house. Yeah. We've done house two, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, <laughs> But no, Randall, we have not done House yet, but you're welcome to join us for when we eventually do that movie. Someday, yeah, someday, I'm sure you'll get around to it. If you do, keep me in mind. I want to, th- that movie is ridiculous. I want to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. My wife loves that movie. She owns the Blu-ray. It's a it's a big hit in my household. <laughs> that, I don't, I don't, that's pretty interesting. I like what that says about your household. Uh, there's only like three Blu-ray she owns. One being House, the other one being, um, well, she she owns Frankenhooker on Blu-ray. So, wow, okay, <laughs> yeah, she's got. I like her taste. She's got very interesting taste. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's all we got. Next episode, everybody, uh, we will be jumping back and we'll we'll start the Kill Bills. Like I said, like I've said previous episodes we're going to split Kill Bill up mainly so I have an excuse to watch more martial arts movies that we usually don't get to watch on this show um, still wrong with that I'm not sure which one but I know Jesse will probably join us on at least one of those uh, he's, he likes Sonny Chiba stuff so we're definitely going to do something with a Sonny Chiba movie you're going to do a Kung Pao right <laughs> Kung Pao is Sonny Chiba in Kung Pao no, 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 no. Thank you don't God. Re- you remember that movie, right? I do. Is okay. I, Well, no, I don't think I've ever watched it, but I remember the cover in, in stores, and it looked ridiculous. Well, Is look that... forward to Randall's 0.5 star review of Kung Pao Kung on a Pao. future episode of, <laughs> of the Grawlix <laughs> Cinematic Universe. <laughs> All right. Hey, Jasper, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Caronzo Media. 
You had to look up Kung Pao. I yeah. love it. No, uh, I was like, I was thinking, was that the one with the, the fighting cow? Absolutely. That was, okay. <laughs> anyway, you can find me on Twitter at Caranzo Media, which is K-O-R-A-N-S-O Media or Mixer at www.mixer.com slash Caranzo. And I've been Randall Sylvie this whole time. You can find me at randallsylvie.com. It's R-A-N-D-A-L-S-I-L-V-E-Y. Uh, the same on Twitter. But screw all that. More importantly, go to uh, Twitter. Find us at GCU Podcast. I really need to like clean up my, my little wrap-up promotion, don't I? Uh, GCU Podcast on Twitter. Or, as always, find this and more at grawlixpodcast.com. It's G-R-A-W-L-I-X podcast.com. Well, guys, that's all I got. I, that's all we got. So I got. And <laughs> I'm sorry, it's probably a very confusing description I just gave, but, uh, well, I mean, I don't know. It's not to me because I, I, I know what you're talking about. Uh, uh, Jasper, does that make sense to you? Yep. <laughs> I'm going to say his, uh, his face says no, but, uh, no, that's okay. Because recently I know, I know I listened to your guys, um, Foxy Brown and Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking like, cause Jack Hill is infamous for taking very bizarre, like a, a traditional type of movie and then adding these weird characters in it and all sorts of interesting things when like, in reality, you know, when you guys are saying, oh, it just kind of starts out with nudity, like that's all the studio wanted and whatever else he fills in, you know, that's up to Jack. It seemed more, more miss than hit for that one with you guys.